Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 3, today with a message entitled, The Woman and the Dragon. So join us as we turn to our Bibles to Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. It's often the case when a Christian first experiences persecution that he or she immediately responds with surprise. You know, I've not attempted to hurt anyone, so what are the reasons for this? I'm being taught to love even my enemies. Why am I being treated harshly? Why am I persecuted? But 1 Peter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And then as Peter develops this theme further, he goes on to speak about persecution as those things that range from everything to being insulted because of Christ to any form of suffering that faith in Jesus might bring us. Now, Jesus speaks about that as is recorded in Luke 6.22. And there he speaks about being hated, being excluded from certain functions or positions, being reviled or even being maligned, people spurning our name as evil, seeking to destroy our reputation. All of those things are kinds of persecution that come to the follower of Jesus. And the Bible tells us, don't be surprised. We are promised that these kinds of things are going to happen. Now, I say that because when we often think about persecution, all that we think about is being imprisoned or killed for the faith. And we think either about Christians who are killed then in the early first century, or Christians who live in countries today that have strong anti-conversion laws. But truth be told, persecution covers a wide variety of things. Also, 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 reminds us, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It should be a part of basic Christian teaching to new believers that that we train them both to expect this and also how to respond when it happens. But why does it happen? Well, according to the scripture, these things happen because there's a great war going on in the heavens. Revelation chapters 12 to 14 present us with a series of seven visions that give insight into the nature of this warfare. See, I want you to think of those Christians who first received the book of Revelation, they were living in Asia Minor. The church in Smyrna had suffered both tribulation and poverty, and Jesus predicted that some of them would be put to death shortly. The church in Pergamum had already seen one of their church members, a man named Antipas, being killed. Jesus said their church was located at the place where Satan had his throne. Why are these things happening? They might have asked. And as Christians look forward to the coming at the end of the age, why is it that evil will only increase in intensity, leading to a great tribulation? And so today I'm reading Revelation 12, 1 to 6, the first in a series of seven visions, giving us insight into the spiritual realities that stand behind the present conflict. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. 
And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Well, like so much that we read in Revelation, we're not to take matters literally, but we rather see these matters for what they are, visions of a spiritual reality. Well, here's what I mean. Anyone reading these words will think immediately about the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. So shortly after his birth, Mary and Joseph fled into the wilderness, that is, going down the Judean Negev, then all the way to Egypt to escape King Herod, who wanted to destroy the child. Indeed, Revelation chapter 12, 1 to 6 is a very powerful and dramatic image describing to us why it is that Herod was in such a rage that he was willing to massacre all the young children of Bethlehem just so that he would have a chance of butchering the child Jesus. In reality, what stood behind Herod and the drama of that story is a dragon, Satan himself. The reason Herod wanted to kill Jesus can be answered on two different levels. On a merely human level, we can say he's motivated by insane jealousy and his unwillingness to allow anyone to live who might challenge him or his throne. I mean, he would even butcher his own sons. <laughs> but that's only one explanation. On another level, or let me put it another way, on the final and ultimate level, Herod's rage was the rage of the dragon who wanted to devour the Messiah. What happened on earth was the direct result of a war being waged in the spiritual realm. Well, okay, if that's so, don't you think that's also the explanation for your suffering as a believer in Jesus? Not only does the dragon hate the Son of God, he hates the people of the Son of God. The minute you come to Christ, you appeared on the demon's most wanted bulletin board. You were hated in the realms of spiritual darkness. You became a target. Don't be surprised, said Peter, that you're going through a fiery trial. I mean, after all, why should that surprise you? The dragon hates you, and so do his minions who are the demons of hell. Now, let's go to the actual image itself. Some of the pieces of the image should be fairly clear. The child that is born is the same one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's a direct quote from Psalm chapter 2, which is one of the messianic psalms. Jesus is the Messiah. He's destined to rule all the works of God, the whole earth. And all who fail to bow the knee to him will fall under his wrath. Ultimately, he will triumph. And so this image, there is no doubt that the child is Jesus. Secondly, there can be also no doubt that the dragon is Satan. Now, in case you missed that, by the time you get to verse 9 of this passage, that matter is spelled out for you, where the dragon is called first the ancient serpent, then second the devil, third Satan, and finally the deceiver of the whole earth. But who is the woman in this vision? Some of you, because I've related this vision to the birth of Jesus and the rage of Herod, think that I'm going to say that the woman must be Mary. But in fact, we must discount that as a possibility. That's because later on in verse 17 we read, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. See, nowhere in any passage of the New Testament, in actual words or by implication, is the church or the people of God ever called the offspring of Mary. 
Clearly, we must resist the temptation to identify the woman with Mary. So then who is the woman? Well, I think the best way to identify her in this vision is to start at the beginning and look at each detail of the vision. So let's go back to verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Let's take it one phrase at a time. The woman appears in heaven. Now, does that mean that she is in heaven? Well, no. That's not what heaven here refers to. In verse 4, we are told that the tail of the dragon swept down a third of the stars of heaven, and there heaven must simply refer to the sky, which is that part that is visible to us which live on earth. See, I think the best way to think of this is that the woman appears in the sky and she's visible to the human race. Second, we notice that she is clothed with the sun. Now again, if we're overly literal, we're going to think about her as standing in the middle of the sun with the sun wrapped around her. But this is an image, you see. It's a picture of a great reality. The image is supposed to give us the impression of the majesty and the glory that surrounds the woman. You know, it's hard to ignore her. She's filled with splendor. The moon is under her feet, and it probably means no more than to reemphasize both her importance and her magnificence. Everyone notices her. But then the next item is really significant. She is a crown on her head, and the crown is made up of 12 stars. Now, the identity of the woman and the identity of the 12 stars are a part of the same package. Furthermore, because we know that this woman gives birth to the Messiah, we have to assume, therefore, that the woman is none other than a representation of the people of Israel, and the 12 stars are a depiction of the 12 tribes of Israel that make up her nation. It is the glory of what God did by selecting Israel as his people that gave rise to the birth of the Messiah who has come into the world. And once we settle on that, we're going to see that the drama has only now begun. So grateful to hear feedback from listeners as we celebrate 60 years of ministry. Friends of the ministry wrote recently to share how encouraged they've been over the years listening to the Bible teaching of Theodore Epp how he was a great man of faith, vision, and faithfulness to the Word of God. And now, they continue to listen every day with gratitude as Dr. Neufeld remains faithful to this same legacy. The Word of God does not change, and we continue to celebrate its truth and the good news shared for all mankind. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to continue a 60-year legacy of Bible teaching made possible through the prayers and gifts of friends like you right across Canada for six decades. Please continue with your gracious support as the truth of God's Word is broadcast across our nation. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca today. Some of you might not yet be convinced that the woman of Revelation 12 must be Israel. But John is using an image that's very familiar to anyone who knows the First Testament well. Isaiah 66, verse 7, 
Speaking about the future of Jerusalem, there the prophet says, Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. And then later in verses 10 to 11, it says, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. See, the image in Isaiah is an image of Jerusalem as a woman giving birth to the faithful people of God. There's a similar image in Isaiah 26 and in Micah 4, but I think you get the idea. Either Israel or Jerusalem is frequently depicted as a pregnant woman ready to give birth. And in terms of Revelation chapter 12, that fits. I mean, after all, Abraham was promised that a blessing would come to the whole world through his seed. Jacob promised that the ruler of the world would come from Judah. David was promised that his throne would be the throne of the Messiah, who's going to rule the whole earth. And when the Apostle Paul speaks about Israel, he says, and I'm reading Romans 9, 4, and 5, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Well, there you have it. Both the glory of Israel, a woman clothed with the sun, and the birth that came from Israel, the Christ, as Paul says, who is God over all. Well, very good. Let's get back to the drama of Revelation 12. I'm reading verse 2. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So clearly here we're referring to the expectation of the birth of the Messiah. Now to verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. We've already identified this as Satan, but we're left wondering about the particulars. Why is the dragon red? Well, back in Revelation 6, when we discussed the four horsemen of the apocalypse, we noticed then that the second horse was bright red, and that its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. That is, he was given permission to wage war. So this dragon in Revelation 12 is red for some of the same reasons. He's a warrior dragon. He has no interest in peace. But as we are reminded over and over again in Revelation, God is always in control. The dragon wages war because he has been given permission by God to do so. God is still in control. Well, very well. But what about the seven heads and then the ten horns and the seven crowns? I mean, what do they represent? We have noticed that in the book of Revelation, the number seven is often a number of fullness or of completion. The seven heads with seven crowns represent the amount of power and authority the dragon has. His power is as great as it can possibly be or as great as God allows it to be. The ten horns reminds us of the image found in Daniel 7 verse 7. The great beast at the end of time has ten horns. And there the ten horns, Daniel tells us, represent ten kings who rule the earth on behalf of the dragon. So here's the picture. The woman Israel is about to give birth to the Messiah, but Satan, the lord of war, who has great power, also controls the kings of the earth and is prepared to mobilize them to kill the child the minute he's born. And that, by the way, explains much of anti-Semitism and also explains the hatred of the Messiah. 
Again, that exactly explains Herod's willingness to destroy Jesus. Herod was one of the kings of the earth who were in Satan's back pocket, whom he was willing to mobilize whenever he needed a king to fight on his behalf. And by the way, is that a frightening concept? Right now, Satan has world leaders whom he can count on to do his bidding. Whenever he wants, he sends them out either to kill the people of God or to create the kind of chaos on earth that would prevent the spreading of the gospel. Think of how this news must have impacted the seven churches who received this letter. Of course, they said, this is who the emperor Domitian is. As he seeks to destroy the church, he is Satan's agent. Now to verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Now, in Daniel 8, verse 10, we read of a human king who is said to throw some stars to earth and trample on them. Now, there the picture in Daniel speaks of the authority of Satan to devastate his enemies. Okay, to verse 4. Having described such a strong enemy, he then says, This very dragon was awaiting the birth of the Messiah. All his power was marshaled to do whatever he needed to do to destroy the Messiah when he came. Now, I don't think you can tell the story of Jesus without telling the story of Satan who sought to kill him. From the time of Herod to the time he was tempting Jesus to jump from the wall of the temple, to his attempts to seduce his ministry repeatedly, to the murderous hatred of Jesus by the scribes and the Pharisees, to eventually inciting men to nail him to a cross. Jesus said, the devil came to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That spiritual drama is at the heart of the story of Jesus. You can't read the gospel without seeing what John now portrays for us. Luke 22, verse 53, portrays Jesus' arrest at the hands of the chief priests and the religious establishment in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness. He says to them, When I was with you, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. See, Jesus knew exactly what was at stake. This was his battle with the ancient foe. In Revelation 12, John simply says of Jesus that the story of Jesus ends with a triumphant note. He was caught up to God in his throne. Meaning simple. Satan would gladly have devoured Jesus on the cross, but his resurrection proved that the power of the dragon could not destroy him. Well, fine. That's the spiritual drama regarding the ministry of Jesus. John's not done. He turns back to the woman, and I'm reading verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished 1,260 days. So what in the world can that refer to? You know, some Bible teachers think this refers to a historical situation. They say that after the war on the Jews, in which the Romans burned down the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, Rome waged war on Israel and killed many, and they drove the Jews from their homeland, and they were gone for 2,000 years. And some Bible teachers see verse 6 as a reference to Christian Jews from Pella who fled and escaped the same fate that befell so many others. Well, that happened. Enraged at Israel's role in the bringing of a Messiah into the world, Satan did seek to devour the woman. And I could also think about a much more recent incident, that is, Hitler's murderous rage to construct death camps and place a star of David on all Jews and murder them with almost scientific efficiency. 
You see, it takes very little to see what's being conveyed here. But as I've said at the beginning of this study, there's always a future component to these pictures, a depiction of something that is yet to come. The number 1,260 days, well, that's a period of three and a half years. We encountered that same number in Revelation 11, where we learned of two witnesses who prophesied for 1,260 days. And during that study, we also learned that the holy city would be trampled by the nations for 42 months, which of course is also three and a half years. Now here we find a great deal of difference among Bible teachers. Some argue that the woman now takes on dimensions that are larger than Israel, and that the woman becomes a symbol for all the true people of God at all the ages. But others will argue that the woman continues to represent Israel, and that during the time of the end, God will not only provide protection for his church, but he will also provide protection for the people Israel until Christ comes again. Now, for my part, I tend toward this second explanation. God will continue to preserve natural Israel all the way through until the end, for as we'll see in the time of the end, that is, during the millennium, natural Israel will look upon the one whom they have pierced, they will mourn, and Israel will return to her Messiah. If the words of Paul are true, Romans 11:26 reminds us, all Israel will be saved. If God has in mind to, in the end of the day, graft the broken off branches of Israel back into the vine, it should not surprise us that he has a plan to protect the nation of Israel that gave birth to Christ from the rage of the one who would consume her. John, let's stop for a minute and talk about anti-Semitism. Like, what, what gives rise to anti-Semitism? You know, I think that uh, all manner of different explanations are given to this. But I'm going to argue that anti-Semitism uh, is something that's very foundational to the nature of evil. And I know there have been all sorts of people groups that have been persecuted in the past, but it seems to me that the Jewish people have been the very target of a great spiritual warfare that seeks their undoing. And I think the passage that, that we've just looked at explains why that is. And so there is a spiritual explanation. By the way, Ben, I might say that, you know, on the United Nations level, the amount of, of resolutions that have been passed against Israel far surpasses those that have been passed against any other nation on earth. And so I think, you know, for the Jewish people, they're always going to struggle with that. And I think it'll always be there until Christ returns and makes the kingdom his own. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. I don't suppose it's difficult to imagine that one of Dr. Neufeld's most popular series is his teaching on the book of Revelation. Dr. Neufeld has taken an expositional approach to this series in the first two volumes, including chapters 1 to 11. Now this month, for the very first time, we air The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 3, teaching chapters 12 to 17. Message titles include The Greatest War in Human History, The Woman and the Dragon, On Eagle's Wings, and The Beast. Join us this month for the first airing of Volume 3, and if you'd like the series on CD for your own library, for a limited time we'll be offering all 15 messages of Volume 3 for only $17, and that includes shipping and handling. 
Volume 1 and 2 are also available, so call us today for yours or to support this Bible teaching ministry with an important financial gift. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.